Okay, and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 92, and today I am extremely pleased to bring to you Dr. Shona Halson. Hi, Shona, how are you doing? Hello, good, thank you. Good. Well, before um, I introduce today's uh, topic and, um, and yourself, of course, just to remind listeners to um, bear in mind, this is episode 92. I know that from periodically we get new listeners jumping on board. So if you want to catch up, just go to guruperformance.com and you can check out all the other um, episodes. I've just started a new series, having taken about six months uh, six months off uh, to work on uh, some research and um, for folks that are also aware of the other things that we do such as our technical articles, our info videos, infographics, all things relating to this concept of science to practice which is my current focus with um, my work and, and these podcasts particularly in the exercise science, exercise, physiology and performance, nutrition field. So um, for all things that relate to professional education and development in that area, just go to guruperformance.com. Right, so Shona, um, if you can just introduce yourself, please. Tell us uh, who you are and what it is you are getting up to professionally, please. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been at the Institute of Sport um, for nearly 15 years now. Um, So my role there is really a combination of servicing um, for the athletes, so um, testing, education, um, that kind of thing directly with the athletes, and also research um, that mainly now involves um, PhD student supervision. Um, The areas that I work in mostly, well, primarily is is recovery, um, but we can sort of break that down into um, hydrotherapy. So we've done a bit of work in that in in the last few years. Um, and sleep. Now, sleep's probably one of the um, the most interesting areas um, that we're working in. So I've been lucky enough to look after recovery for the um, Australian team for the last uh, three Olympics, which is always nice to sort of be there where the, where the action is um, and also, I guess, put into practice some of the things that we learn um, through our research and through our education with athletes. No, that's great. Yeah, sleep being of particular interest, bearing in mind that it's uh, late afternoon your time and my time. Exactly. As I was saying off there, you guys really are on the wrong side of the world. What's going on? And um, we are so far away. Now, this this topic, uh, recovery. Um, I mean, it, you know, there's only so much you can get into in a one-hour podcast, and and what I don't want to do is get into stuff that you know people kind of know already or can get mm-hmm. reading papers and I'll make sure that they have all the appropriate links to the right, the right papers. What, what I want to do here is sort of dig into some important aspects of this concept of recovery and, and, and sort of unpack that into an applied context. That's kind of the focus. As I said, science to practice is my, is my thing right now. Um, but let, let's just define what this word recovery actually means. It, it, it is really interesting when you look at the field of sports science as an academic discipline um, and you you know and you look at how we train and educate professionals we, we look at how research is, is developed huge amounts of time and resources goes into training of people but recovery um, very much less a focus um, the more reading I've done on this particularly on sleep which we'll spend a lot of time on um, it is, it is amazing, actually, how much more there is to clearly learn about how to improve athletes, athletes' performance. And, you know, we keep opening up new areas of interest, such as this concept of, of recovery. And um, it's not completely new on my, my podcast here. I've, I've interviewed all sorts of people where we delved into other topics, particularly athlete immunity, um, and periodization conversations and so on. And we have mentioned the word recovery, but we haven't really gotten into it. The, the one podcast I have done, just to remind everyone, I cannot remember when I did it because I'm still too sleep. Uh, too, my eyes are still asleep here. Um, but with John Bartlett, uh, we did a podcast about sleep. Um, a Brit who's down under, I believe, um, over there in, in Australia. Um, so, Shona, uh, let's let's actually define what we mean by recovery, just so everyone's on the same page. What what, what does that term actually mean in this context? Yeah, I think it's a it's an excellent point because 
when I first started working in the area of recovery, you talk recovery and people would say recovery from what injury? And the sort of the concept of just general recovery wasn't something that was really um, sort of considered high priority. And so the way that we look at recovery really is to have the, it, it enables the athlete to either train or compete um, at the highest level that they can. Um, and so, so we look at recovery as um, being able to um, provide um, time and maybe interventions um, different aspects to enhance an athlete's ability to to be able to perform. So, um, and maybe obviously in a training environment or a competition environment. Um, and in that instance, in those instances, you know, recovery can mean very different things. Um, and we we do talk about um, periodization and adaptation around recovery, particularly in training. So it's not something that's really well defined, but I think it's got a psychological component and it's obviously got um, got a physical component as well. So what we want to do is to have our athletes um, be able to train at the highest level they can um, consistently, um, and also obviously in a competition setting, be able to um, to race to compete um, at, at the best of their ability. Yeah, I mean, I think if one just looks at a dictionary definition of the term recovery, um, that itself opens up, I think, some ideas. You know, it, it, um, I'm just looking online here, and there's you know lots of different dictionaries, of course, so they have different perspectives. But one sort of basic view of it is that recovery means a return to a normal state of health mind or strength now yep. normal um is a bit dangerous too i i would imagine because when we're working with elite athletes we're not looking at a normal state plus in order to perform at their best um you know returning an athlete to a normal state of health or function isn't necessarily um, you know, the, 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 the optimal scenario for optimal performance. It depends, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of it depends on perspective, but like even, mm -hmm. even dictionary perspective there. So there are clearly lots of different angles. Um, I mean, you don't have to go into every single facet here, but what, what, what are the different areas then, particularly from a research perspective that you guys are now looking at? as it relates to recovery? We mentioned sleep, obviously, but what are the other areas? Yeah, so um, apart from sleep, we have been doing some research around hydrotherapy, so um, the old ice baths uh, and the hot cold. Um, we've done some um, research into compression garments um, as a means of enhancing recovery. We've dabbled a little bit, not a lot, but dabbled a little bit in um, psychological aspects, so relaxation, um, meditation, those kinds of things. Um, and also, um, in conjunction with our sports nutrition department, we've looked a little bit at um, the influence of nutrition on recovery as well. So, And there's obviously lots of other aspects um, to recovery recovery but they're kind of the the big ones that we've spent most of our time on yeah uh, and some of those areas have, have clearly been better explored than others and i don't just mean that mm -hmm. in relation to sport but also um you know when it, it, medical applications for recovery are yeah. obviously you know uh, i mean there's some big areas there people that are recovering from surgery from accidents in you know uh, mm -hmm. day injuries that sort of thing and clearly um i mean my my own sort of angle my bias if you like is nutrition because that's my main field of application yeah. and that that one i i think we know a lot more about nutrition and recovery in in terms of just simply a um a healthy person is is more likely to recover uh, and uh, I, I did a podcast with Kevin Carroll mm -hmm. just being promoted actually but um, was head of performance at the English Institute of Sport until recently um, and his thing was very much about you know the, the the well his catchphrase is unleashing the power of food but beyond that he, he may, makes a very interesting comment about our job as performance nutritionists is very much about keeping our our athletes healthy and 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 help and keeping them in a functional state um mm -hmm. as opposed to simply just performance i.e how do we make them bigger faster stronger um you know our, our prime role there is about nutrition i've done loads of podcasts on this type of topic so we don't have to get too much on that but i mean would you say um nutrition has a vital role in that 
in that process from what you guys have been seeing. It, it is sort of one of the first things that people must get right. Yeah, most definitely. And, and it is, as you say, one of the most researched areas. So um, I liken some of the work that we do around sleep and and, um, and recovery to being, you know, we're 20 or 30 years behind where we are with carbohydrates and protein. So, um, but we, we definitely advocate, you know, we know the importance of, of nutrition, of rehydration in that in that recovery period. So, um, yeah, most certainly it's one of the, you know, we talk about training, eating, sleeping as, as you know, the foundations. And I think, we, you know, we've, we know a fair bit about training. Uh, we know a fair bit about nutrition. Um, and now coming into, you know, hopefully adding some more knowledge around the, the sleep and the recovery side of things. Yeah, and I'm going to get into that because you, you gave me some papers to read and um, I've found a couple of gems in those papers. I mean, it, it, there's some really cool stuff that I want to get into. But if we just bring it back to the, you know, we've defined what we mean by recovery, at least what that word means in our general understanding. But as it relates to training, adaptations to training, um, and how that might impact performance. But, you know, it, maybe we could just uncover a bit about the relevance of recovery in that regard. What, you know, why, why, do we, why do we bother with even thinking about recovery? Yeah, look, that's such a good question and such a topical question at the moment. So um, we're really undergoing this kind of debate in the area of recovery. Um, how much recovery do you want? Can you over-recover? Um, we certainly think you can under-recover um, and that, that may have links to overtraining, illness and injury, but can you over-recover? So, um, you know, as you know, we need fatigue, we need inflammation, we need a bit of muscle damage uh, in turn, you know, it's necessary to, to adapt, to improve. And do we really want a whole lot of recovery blunting those adaptations? And so a lot of the, you know, some of the scientific research now is, is looking at, at at exactly that and there's some there's some really good research out there um, suggesting that maybe you can do um, too much recovery and maybe we are blunting adaptation um, however there's not a lot of good um, evidence in in really high level athletes and so you kind of have on on one hand you have the philosophy that okay if our athletes are less tired less sore they can train harder they're probably we think well there's no evidence but we think they might be less likely to get injured and less likely to get sick more days out training, uh, which obviously is, is super important. And then on the other hand, you have the the other philosophy that, well, you know, don't we need some of this soreness and damage and and um, these different aspects of fatigue to, to drive adaptation? And so I think it's not a, a black or a white scenario. It's like most things in sports science, it's somewhere in between. Um, and that um, it does depend. There are instances where you may not want to do any recovery. You may want to drive that adaptation. You want might want the athletes fatigued and you can give them good opportunity to um, to taper or big recovery block before they need to perform. Uh, and, you, you know, we know overreaching or intensified training is a perfectly normal part of, of training for most athletes. Um, however, when it comes to a competition setting, um, you may want to throw every single recovery strategy that you have at an athlete because um, there's pretty good evidence now with a series of meta-analyses and reviews to show that things like cold water immersion, um, if done correctly, acutely, are going to be beneficial to performance. So I think like we periodise nutrition and we periodise training, now we start to think about periodising recovery and we really need to think about the type of sport that we're working with. So I work a lot with swimmers. Um, they have probably two races a year that are important, uh, nationals or trials and world championship and really one race every or one, one competition every four years in the games, that's really important. So, you know, there may be big blocks of time where we take a bit of recovery out for them and it's okay for them to be tired all, all the time. Um, they don't get injured a huge amount. It's not a contact sport. There's not a lot of eccentric damage. There's no impact with the ground. Let's get them pretty tired, similar to the cyclists. Overreach them, push them, but let them recover and, and do it appropriately. Um, if you're working with a rugby union team, um, playing every week, getting beaten up, um, travelling a lot, um, you probably want to throw a lot more recovery at those at those players um, than than you might do for for other um, other sports. So I think it's really about sitting down, thinking with that with the coach, with the support staff, and saying where are the times we might want to push a little bit of adaptation in a safe way, 
um, whether the times you want to add a little bit of extra recovery um, and you know obviously if they've got lots of competitions you really want to make sure you're kind of maximizing their recovery in there but the other way we kind of well I like to think about recovery as well now is it's not just about recovering from what you've done that day it's also about preparing for the next session so um, if you're working with athletes and they've had a, they've got two big days in a row, Monday and Tuesday, um, maybe you might want them to do some recovery on Monday, get them ready for that hard day on Tuesday so they can still do some good quality work. If they have Wednesday off, maybe you, you might not do some recovery after the Tuesday and just let them naturally adapt and naturally um, recover. So I think the days of, you know, everyone does recovery all the time and we're all going to do ice baths four times a week. Uh, I think that kind of thing has... Um, has is a little bit old now and I think we need to get a little bit more sort of individual and, and specific with this um, types of sports that we're working with. Yeah, cool. Oh, th right. So there's a Pandora's box of content. <laughs> what are we doing? There is. I feel like uh, uh, a professional fisherman of red herrings here. I've got to be careful. Um, right. <laughs> So um, there are all sorts of things that came to my head there. So I, I guess one thing um, we need to get into is, is, is the idea of recovering from what. Um, mm -hmm. We are, of course, you know, we're very focused, particularly with the training of athletes. And, and we almost have to define what we mean by athlete, of course, because there are people who are thinking they're athletes and they might have the <laughs> title, uh, dare I say it, um, maybe football players, and by that I mean soccer players. Who, who maybe aren't, you know, don't endure as much physical stress as, say, uh, rugby players might do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are athletes that travel, have heavy travel schedules. I, I, I used to work with um, Olympic fencing squad, and my God, did they do a lot of, of traveling, and there's mm -hmm. also stresses there. Um, we'll get into sleep, obviously, in a bit. But, but recovering from what um, comes to mind, and, and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because um, recently, we, we had some lectures on a program I run uh, by Professor Neil Walsh about athlete immunity. And a very important mm -hmm. thing comes up, which is, you know, we mustn't just focus on training stress. We should also consider life stress in that checks and balances of all things that constitute stress. And of course, stress is something we need to get into in a minute. But, but um, what, what about this idea, this thought process of recovering from what? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. And, and, you know, as we were discussing earlier, where we really are at the, at the sort of early days in, in terms of, in terms of the research, but um, when it comes to, to the practice, exactly, you know, we're trying now to understand what some of these recovery strategies do. So yes, the early work shows that, okay, it may, might help performance, but questions now are how, because when you understand how, you know, um, you start to get an understanding of how you can implement those strategies. Um, so, for example, if we think that um, contrast therapy is really good for inflammation, well, you go, okay, well, maybe you start to target the contrast therapy around um, your uh, muscle sessions that involve, you know, muscle damage or, um, or you know, eccentric type work. So I think we're, we're still a long way off from being able to say, based on anything scientific, this is what you need to do. I think we have a pretty good feel from working with you know, athletes over time as to what may be best um, in terms of recovery from, from, different types of, um, from different types of training. But you, you're also, you also hit the nail on the head in terms of you know, psychological recovery, um, recovery from travel. Um, you know, we, we see some athletes and, and we think, well, these guys, they're, they're physically recovered. But mentally, they that they have nothing. Um, so, what, how do we how do we get them um, in a better psychological state to be more motivated, to be in a better mood? Physically, they're all right. They can go out and train, but they're just really flat. And like a lot of physiology, we've probably con concentrated on the periphery, and now we're kind of a little bit more interested in the brain, and then a little bit more interested in in how that links to to psychology. But um, you're right, Pandora's box, there's, there's plenty to learn. There's plenty of people with a lot of experience working with athletes and understanding, you know, how they might be responding to training, what kinds of things they need to target with their recovery. Um, but from a research scientific perspective, we've got a very long way to go. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I'm mentioning this and the reason why we have these conversations is we're just trying to fill in a few, a few gaps in the literature or, or stuff that doesn't get written in a peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. Because it, you know, I guess it might be considered wishy-washy, or it's just hard to control 
one writing yeah. at times uh, with these things. But, you know, particularly with younger practitioners, and by younger I mean younger in terms of experience, it, it, there is a tendency to mechanistically, um, you know, uh, just take strategies from a book and apply it in practice mm. without due consideration of the individual context. And, and this, this, this subject of recovery is such a, as I said, such a big one, really. Mm. So incredibly individual and an area, I'm very much into this, con- this concept of context, particularly the individual context. And, and human beings, you know, athletes are humans. They live mm-hmm. in worlds where they have all sorts of things going on in their lives, um, which, you know, is also how they're set up from birth and their own personal sort of psychological, emotional profiles, how they handle, you know, as I inferred earlier, you know, a lot of athletes do a lot of travel. Some people are good with that stuff. Mm. Uh, one area of nutrition I always find interesting is is not so much the um, biochemical or physiological impacts of, of nutrition, but it's also the emotional impact of it. You know, we, we, we look at food as a familiar thing. It's something that makes us feel mm. at home. We enjoy it. We use food. There are all these different components which all has implications for for stress, if you like, on on the body. And and I guess what I'm leading into here is the 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 importance of the individual and us as practitioners taking the science into an applied context. You know, it, it's it's that need to understand the importance of the individual. Yeah. Look. I couldn't agree more. And I think we see that. So in the recovery center at the AIS, I mean, we have, you know, we have cold water immersion there, the old big ice bath. And, you know, I know there's athletes who really, really don't like doing ice baths. And I know that they've given it a try. They find it incredibly stressful or they find it doesn't have any benefits to them. Um, I'm certainly not going to be, well, hang on, the the research, so the 2% improvement in performance, I think you need to get in. Um, You know, I think we've got to be, as you say, considerate of the individual. And if if this is something that's going to cause more stress to them, um, let's find something else um, that they can do. I also like the idea of, well, we educate the athletes, we tell them about what are good recovery options, and we might plan recovery into the training program. But I like the idea of choice. So the athletes can say, well, you know, I don't know that, you know, we've been working in recovery, doing research on cold water immersion and contrast water therapy now for 15 years. And I can't, I still can't tell you whether doing, you know, two minutes hot, two minutes cold is any better than doing a five minute straight ice bath. Like we, we don't have that information. So if an athlete says, you know, an athlete walks into the recovery centre, um, that they might want some options. Um, and I think it's important that they have some choice and they go, oh, well, today I'm going to do this. And it just, I think it gives them a bit more, a bit more of that sort of, um, it's a bit more psychologically um, uh, beneficial for them, I think, to have that aspect, aspect of choice and to trust the individual and say, you know, what works for this person um, and what's been shown in the science to work on an average small group, you know, a group of 15, um, doesn't mean that's going to work for everyone. Um, and we certainly know that with sleep as well. I mean, how highly individual sleep is and, and giving blanket information uh, is, is definitely not um, not going to work for everyone. So, yeah, I think we, t- we need to understand what we're recovering from and individualise that um, and also individualise the recovery as much as we can, understanding that, We don't really have a whole lot of information on the difference between different hypertherapic protocols, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to get into sleep because that's going to be a big thing we'll talk about. But, um, you you know, particularly, well, in our industry, new things come up from time to time that really can get in vogue. And by that, I mean, um, like, for example, um, last year we had a football team that was not um, expected to do as well as it did, and it just didn't have an incredible amount of success. So naturally, people will look at this team and go, well, what is it they've been doing? And um, maybe they've been experimenting with um, certain recovery techniques. So now everyone starts using that recovery (laughs) technique. Um, Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things like that. The, the whole, there was that obsession with marginal gains, um, you know, to yeah. that, um, you know, you've got athletes traveling with the same pillow, the same bedding, 
Um, yeah. You know, um, there, there, there's a lot of these things, but sometimes this can be at the expense of the bigger picture. Um, and, and I believe, you know, knowledge is, is, a, is a tool in the toolbox, but it doesn't mean you have to use that. Yeah. Tool. You just need to know when, mm -hmm. but you also need to know when maybe it's not so useful. Um, maybe um, just quickly, the, the, I guess this, this idea of when and when not to, when is it more relevant, um, I guess, is, is, is what I'm leading to. Yeah, I, I guess I could give you, say, an example of how um, we may work with recovery, say, track cycling, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, early on in the season, they might be out on the road doing a whole lot of um, endurance kilometres, uh, out on the road bikes. Now, not that fast if they have zero recovery. Um, they might, you know, not have um, not have um, a great deal scheduled into their program. Um, as then they start to move into the track more and the coach is wanting more sort of high-quality, high-intensity sessions, we might add a little bit more recovery in there. And then, obviously, in there are competition at, at a track meet, you know, four- or five-day meet or something, we will throw lots of um, recovery at them. Having said that, I think it's important to look at who you've got in your squad. Say, in your squad of track cyclists, you might have an older athlete who um, is prone to injury or is having sleeping issues and um, or just likes a, a nice hot spa to relax. Um, and so you might do something completely different for that individual athlete. You might have more recovery there because they're kind of prone to injury and, and those kinds of things. And you might have some... You know, I'm always amazed by young athletes. They can do so much more than I think we give them um, We give them credit for. And so sometimes just let them go. Um, let them, you know, we've done studies where we thought we were going to overreach athletes and they just got better and better and better. They're just young and fit and competitive. Um, and so sometimes I think, you know, we might look at their, they might walk around tired, they might give you all these fatigue scores on their monitoring tests, but... They can they can tolerate a lot more than than we probably think we that we think they can, um, and so sometimes I think um, as long as you're monitoring athletes appropriately, um, and you can either take a little bit of recovery away or, or put some in. And if you've got that sort of relationship with the athletes where they can tell you, look, I'm I'm not I'm struggling a little bit. I might need a little bit more here or there. Um, then I think you can really work that um, on an individual basis. But I think you know we need to have recovery programmed in. Um, because there's definitely instances where there's not enough recovery and, and we're losing some of the benefits of the training because they're just not recovered enough. Um, but uh, I think that um, we, we can be a lot more individual when, you know, when you've got the, the, the knowledge on, on how um, some of these recovery strategies work and you've, you know, you've worked with your athletes for, for a little bit of time, you can kind of get a good idea of when to add things and when to sort of take things away. Yeah, yeah, well... As you're saying that, I, you know, I'm also thinking uh, an important quick thought is, you know, there, I mean, we've mentioned there's different kinds of recovery and there's many different types of stress that individuals will find themselves under um, work stress, life stress, training stress. But the, the training stress thing is interesting. Um, of course, uh, you know, in we're trying to induce a certain amount of stress in order to force or bring about or facilitate rather adaptations. That's a necessary part mm -hmm. of that process. But getting that balance right is kind of where the issues are. And the more elite the athlete or the more the higher the stakes are, which to a recreational athlete might be, you know, they might be of the mindset. They might be a very type sort of a recreational triathlete, just stick, you know, doing the mileage um, and overdoing the jump mileage, as they call it. Um, you know, sort of waking up extra early to go for a run, they go for a swim at lunch, and then they'll, you know, go for a long ride in the evening, um, as well as a regular job and a family. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we talk about athletes all the time about needing all this high tech stuff, but actually, there are certain sectors of the recreational athlete market that are arguably under more stress than anyone. Um, so recovery is not just for um, professionally athletes, is what I'm saying. You know, the, 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 the conversation here is just as valid. So let's just quickly define then what we mean by athlete um, in this context of recovery. What, what, what you know, what, what are we talking? We're we talking about somebody who trains once a week. Are we talking about, mm -hmm. like I say, the triathlete who trains a hundred times a day? <laughs> where, where does this come yeah. from? 
become more relevant? Yeah, it's it's again really great question. I mean, you know, I think if you if you're uh, if you're training once a week, you probably don't need much recovery. You know, I try and do you know a few gym sessions and maybe a couple of run sessions a week, and I certainly don't think I need that much recovery. Um, but I think you need you know. I think when you're talking, most people need the basics. The, you know, you, you've got to eat right, you've got to sleep right, you've got to be careful with your training. Um, but I think it, I like the idea of having some of these specialised recovery strategies as kind of like, you know, the old cliche of icing on the cake. And we have a lot of developmental athletes that come through our system. And, you know, I don't like the idea of seeing these guys, you know, jumping in ice baths all the time and doing all these extra little fancy things. I think let's get the basics, the foundations right for some of these younger athletes, educate them on the importance of looking after themselves um, and then, you know, save some of these sort of specialised things for um, uh, for when they're higher level athletes. But you're right, when you're talking some of these, um, you know, they're weekend warriors that are, you know, getting up very early, they have you know, can have a lot of stress in their lives from a work perspective. They're probably trying to potentially train late as well. I think for those type of individuals, like whenever I speak to those kinds of um, kinds of people, I always have a really strong focus on sleep um, and trying to just make sure, okay, your recovery for you means sleep. Um, looking after yourself, the way you, the, your nutrition, looking after your sleep, um, and you know things like compression gear are super easy to use. And for these the, these type of individuals, it's it's not about like for me, it's not about okay, how well are you competing and have you done a PB in this certain triathlon? It's about we just want them consistently training. We just want them out there doing what they're doing as often as they can. And if they're looking after themselves because they're eating right, sleeping right, they may have a little bit of compression or maybe do a pool session here or there. And if that gets them to be able to do what they like to do, which is to train every day, well, then um, then go for it. But I think uh, you know, if you're only doing a couple of sessions a week and you're only out there for, for, for a bit of fun, then, um, you know, your, your recovery is probably just, probably, probably just sleep. And that's because we all need it. And some of us don't get as much as we should, but everyone should, uh, should be looking after their sleep just from a health and wellbeing perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone needs convincing on this topic, but um, yeah. let, let's, right. So we're, we're going to get into sleep in a minute, I promise. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, the, you mentioned the word monitoring. Um, you know, we, we, we all have built in monitors in insofar as I think everyone can tell you that they need more sleep. Everyone's like, oh, I just don't feel mm -hmm. great today. Um, you know, all the way up to gadgets. Um, that yep. give you some form of, of feedback to help inform, you know, your own or a coach's assessment of, of where someone is in that recovery sort of paradigm. I mean, let's just quickly get into that. I, I know it's early days in terms of, you know, research and, and, and so on, but mm -hmm. the commercial side of things, there is a huge amount of gadgets <laughs> that aim mm. about this. I know in the lab you can test various things. Well, from um, If we keep this from an applied perspective, so you know what coaches, practitioners might be able to get their hands on, what, what, what's, what's relevant in terms of being able to monitor um, recovery or the need for recovery? Yeah. Um, look, I think it's another one of those, it depends, and it probably depends on the level that you're at and the access to, um, obviously, to staff and, and things like that. I mean, Australian rules football here in Australia is is really quite sophisticated. I mean, these guys will have GPS and heart rate monitors on every single training session. Um, and I think they've come a long way in terms of, okay, they can collect the data, but they can also do really interesting things with it. Um, and, you know, the before each training session, the coach is saying it, who's ready to go, who's not ready to go. So I think when you've got a, a you know a small group of like a single team, you've got good support staff, you've got plenty of cash. Um, there are plenty of things like GPS, heart rate monitoring, subjective monitoring. Um, you know, we have uh, sorry that can be that can be really quite useful um, if you have the ability to an analyze it and present a simple information a simple information back to the coach and athlete. Um, we have at the AIS an athlete monitoring system, which I think we now have about 1,500 athletes inputting into daily, um, and that's simply just question, uh, simple subjective questions. Um, and the benefit of that is being able to look back in time and say, okay, we worked out with 
um, soccer, or football, um, you know, three days straight of knee pain is going to equal potential injury. Uh, that's not, I'm not saying that's what we found, but we can, we can go back and retrospectively um, look at the data and start to be predictive about the future. So, um, but you're right, there's a lot of gadgets out there. And so I'm harping on a bit about sleep here, but sleep's one of the most common ones that has gadgets that'll tell you um, what that says, it can, it can tell you what phase of sleep you're in. Did you get good sleep, bad sleep? It's all, you know, pretty much... Uh, um, not accurate in any way. I was trying to be careful with my words then. Um, but uh, there's a lot of devices out, out there that just are not validated. Um, you know, the only way you can tell if someone's in deep sleep or light sleep is is really if they've um, got um, electrodes on their head um, measuring brain activity. But yet you used to see apps that you can download that you put on next to your bed that says, oh, you're in deep sleep. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> um, so I think there's the sleep world is fraught with. Um, technology at the moment because it's coming, becoming so popular that, um, you know, we certainly don't know if it's accurate. They won't tell you the algorithm, so we really don't know whether it's giving you good information or not. Um, and there is certainly a wealth of other type of, of monitoring devices, especially around heart rate. Um, and look, some of them can be can give you some interesting information, but in my experience, I think you have to collect data for a long enough period of time um, to be able to make sense of it. Um, you probably also, you know, we talk about internal and external loads. So, um, you know, if you're on a, on a bike, you've got your SRM and that measures your external load and you might have your heart rate or your RP as your internal load. And, and one of the things that you can, you can do that can be quite interesting is to look at the, those, those ratios and, and when does one go high and when does one go low. But it's all the kind, it's, it's the information that, you know, can be really valuable if you've got some clever people um, who are analysing that data. So I think the technology's out there. It's just about how do we use it, how do we use it effectively, and what story are we giving back to the, um, to the coaches and the athletes. But um, to be a little bit wary about some of the um, some of the sleep um, monitoring technology that's out there. Yeah, well, no, you make an important point because, you know, there are a lot of gadgets out there and people assume because it's got shiny bells and whistles and you know it might even graph and chart stuff into some software that it must be a valid system but actually if you you know actually go and look into the data and say you know as you said has it even been validated um maybe not and uh, going back to my analogy of tools in a toolbox just because you've got you know the coolest toolbox with the coolest tools doesn't mean you actually know how to use them and sometimes it's better to not use them <laughs> uh, yeah, i i 100% agree and, and a, an example of that is with you know athletes that have gone down to the local shop and they've bought themselves a sleep monitoring device mm. uh, and you know people get obsessed about their sleep and we know the the relationship between stress and anxiety and sleep and you've got an athlete looking at something every single night that's telling them whether they're getting good or bad sleep, which is probably not even accurate. Um, that's when I think it's, you know, sometimes technology is harmless and you know, maybe they're learning and they're, you know, understanding more and they're thinking more about their sleep. But there's also times where it's like, we don't want this information in the hands of athletes every day when it's potentially not accurate. And, you know, when an athlete walks up to a coach and says, oh, look, my watch told me I got a bad night's sleep last night, I'm probably not going to be able to train that well. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's information that, we can collect as scientists, as, as practitioners around the athlete. And then there's also information now that the athletes are collecting a lot more on their own. And I think that's where we have to be a little bit careful and have a bit of an understanding of what they're doing and what they're thinking about those, the kind of numbers that they're, that they're getting. Yeah, no, it's ironic. It's just wonderfully ironic that sleep monitoring devices may actually have a negative impact on sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. It's it's yeah. Well, it's like sometimes athletes, I'm going to take it away. Anticipation is an interesting concept, and I mean, even for this podcast, you know, I I, I, I woke up earlier with anticipations of things I need to think about or talk about, and and um, yeah, um, but I mean, that's a whole other a whole other topic um, that we could get into. But let, let's start to bring this. Um, around to sleep then since we we keep mentioning it and as i said there are so many different angles that 
you know we could get into um we're not going to cover them all but sleep is is one of them as i mentioned i have done a podcast with john bartlett some very very interesting research that he was doing but um there was a couple of things that came up in some of your papers um and i do want to get into those because i think i think they're big ones firstly is the relevance of sleep for recovery there i i I should have highlighted it, but everything's on digital devices. Speaking of <laughs> digital devices, um, not always as easy to highlight stuff, but um, you, you make a comment about sleep is arguably the most important thing you can do for recovery, um, or one of them at least. Um, that's, that is huge. That is huge. And I, as I inferred earlier, I don't think anyone needs that much convincing because we all feel the impact of not sleeping so well. And like you say, mm-hmm. even just being told by a gadget, you maybe didn't get so much sleep. Particularly, you start reading all this research about how it affects health in so many different ways and so on. It starts to give you anxiety about, oh my God, I'm not getting <laughs> it's My kids are gonna shorten my lifespan as a result of my sleep. <laughs> that stuff um, gets a bit worrying. But, but you know, the, the, from what you guys have already discovered, which, incidentally we should point out um it's still very new isn't it it's a it's one of the most i mean i always say nutrition is pretty much the newest kid on the block in sports science but recovery might be newer. Mm. Um, but sleep i mean how how relevant is this to athletes then yeah look and you're right it, it, it's new and and i think it's it is so um, important to athletes and, and the way that you, we kind of, we think about it is you look at the effects of sleep deprivation and when you when you look at what happens to an individual when they're sleep deprived, it gives you an indication of how important it is. Now, we don't have a huge amount of information on athletes, but if you suspect that athletes probably need more sleep than the general population, you think, well, we know what happens in the general population and it's not good. So if we've got sleep deprived athletes, which we do have um, and our research and some research from um, Jonathan Leader at um, over your way in the UK shows the same thing that athletes aren't sleeping well as age match control. So um, we know it's important for the brain in particular and, and sleep is, you know, people still debate why we sleep. You talk to the best sleep scientists in the world and they're, they're debating about it, but um, it, we know it because it's important for so many things. It's like, well, which is it more important for? Um, it's important for the brain in particular, so cognitive function, memory, learning, um, important for reaction time. It's obviously important for performance. If you um, if you sleep deprive someone um, long enough or over enough days, you'll find declines in performance. It's um, very um, sleep deprivation is implicated in illness. And I think we know what, what that's like. You you push yourself and you push yourself to get a whole lot of stuff done before the Christmas holidays so you don't have to look at your laptop for two weeks. And what happens? As soon as you stop, you get sick. Um, injury, there's definitely relationships between um, um, more um, accidents and injuries and potentially recovery from those injuries. A lot of work being done in sleep and metabolism. Um, so we potentially choose um, different foods. Um, when we're um, sleep deprived, again, sure we've um, all experienced that. Um, and of course, mood state, um, irritability when you're sleep deprived, um, increased anger, increased frustration. There's there's a lot of different reasons, and so you put these all together um, for an athlete from a um, from a physical perspective. Um, there's hormone changes in there as well, but I didn't mention. Um, from a mood perspective, uh, it's it's pretty, sleep is pretty much important for every biological function that we have, and almost you know so almost all cells in our in our body run off, run off a, a, a twenty four twenty five hour body clock. So especially even immune cells operate off that. So um, I think that we're now because we now have over the last sort of twenty to thirty years had the right technology to measure sleep through um, polysomnography. Now we're really starting to understand. Okay, here's some of the here's some of the consequences um, of poor sleep. And only recently have we applied that to athletes. And I think it's because we all just assumed athletes would sleep well. They're tired. They're tired all the time. But what we don't recognise is that tiredness doesn't always um, equate to sleepiness. You can be tired um, but not sleepy. Um, and then we also throw athletes into this stressful environment, an environment with travel. We give them caffeine. 
Um, they might be overthinkers. Um, we've got young athletes now who don't mind a bit of Instagram and Twitter and um, social media. So you've kind of got the perfect storm around an, uh, an elite athlete um, to um, interfere with their sleep. Um, and then they probably need it more than anyone else. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it, yeah, I, it is very interesting to read the research um, and look at all the implications this has for how the body functions. Of course, you can't help but feel a dark cloud appear above your head. Um, you know, it's sort of a doomsday prediction when you're reading it, uh, you know, and, and I can think of all sorts of people, but selfishly, I'm thinking about myself naturally when I've got, <laughs> you know, I work and I do travel from time to time. And um, it, it, it makes me think, um, and this, this word comes up, for example, um, last week I was talking to Ben Desborough about caffeine and, there is something that is interesting, and it is um, this concept of habituation. Um, acute mm -hmm. deprivation is obviously a nightmare for everyone that experiences it. But yeah. there are there are scenarios where people will ha will habitually be in a in a state of sleep deprivation, and and that process of habituation may well have a training effect in itself, in the same way that. Um, you know, a one-off muscle, well, one-off heavy workout, it, it, you know, obviously has much greater implications for how you feel the remaining few days than when you're habitually training at that level for a period of time. So it goes with so many different things. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is it's like with all new areas, you know, just because we can measure it, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, what we're thinking it means is what it means. Um, mm. So, and, and I'm making this point because, and you've sort of mentioned this with gadgets, you know, you, it tells you you've had a bad night's sleep and then and the psychological impact that has on you, the, the placebo effect, if you like, is actually worse than whether or not you really did have a bad night's sleep. <laughs> so before we all believe, you know, that sleep deprivation is, is a disaster, um, it, you know, in an ideal world, perfect sleep, absolute best scenario of course but also we don't want people thinking the odd bad night's sleep is going to kill their performance so mm -hmm. when that is something that one habituates to and i'm thinking even for example those like military soldiers for example on operation um mm -hmm. are gonna have that whether we like it or not um uh, after uh, some of my rugby players that i've worked with they've all got kids they do have bad night's sleep periodically yeah. um the the role of habituation what what, what, what do you think about that mm. yeah um interesting question um if you look at some of the habituation research in um the general population mm. they find that yes you do normalize to the sensations of fatigue so that just becomes your new normal um but performance does decline um and so i think um, but you've hit, hit the nail on the head too about, um, I like the idea, I, I don't know if this is the correct terminology, it's just what I, I say. It's about being flexible with your sleep. And so when I'm educating athletes, I'm always saying, look, I want you to pay attention to it because I don't want you staying up till one o'clock in the morning watching Netflix. Like, I need you to pay a little bit more attention to it, but I also don't want you to lose your minds about it um, because the more stress and anxiety you have about sleep, the, the worse you'll probably sleep. And I always reinforce that the odd bad night is totally fine. Um, if nobody sleeps perfectly 365 days a year. Um, but what we need to make sure is that if you're going through a period of sleep deprivation, for whatever reason, life stress, uh, you know, whatever might be popping up in your life, that you probably need to address it and don't let it drag out. In a couple of nights, who cares? But if it gets out to three or four or five nights, okay, let's talk about this and see what we can, how we can improve it. But I think the other thing is there's a lot of athletes out there who are getting very short sleep, who have normalised to it, and who just don't actually know what it feels like to feel good from sleeping good. Um, and as soon as you um, change that and they're getting just a small amount more extra per night, um, they really notice the benefits. And I think it's because, you know, everything else in life gets more important. Um, athletes have FOMO, they'll fear of missing out. They want to do everything with everyone. Um, they want to be connected um, on social media or, or, or whatever, you know, all the time. And so everything else just sort of interferes into sleep. And, you know, we're not saying, you know, you need to sleep 10 hours a night every night, but most athletes can 
do something to sort of tweak their sleep to improve some of the, um, just get maybe a little bit more duration um, every night. But you're exactly right. We don't want to stress them out. We want them to be flexible with their sleep and understand that if you have one really bad night, don't stress about it. The body's really good at going into deep sleep after a night of sleep deprivation. So the next night will probably be amazing. Yeah. Um, you're not going to die. You're going to be fine. We all know what it's like to have zero sleep and function the next day. It feels bad, but you're going to be okay. Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to say. Serious, <coughs> the really serious scenario is when I've had a bad night's sleep and I've run out of coffee <laughs> in the morning. You're dangerous. <laughs> I might not, someone else probably will. Someone else might. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so what I, I hear you saying, and certainly what I've seen in, in the papers that I've been reading, is, is um, it's not so much about sort of the odd acute, you know, just the, 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 the sort of a, um, a temporary period. It's that chronic sleep deprivation that is the bigger issue. Um, yeah. Now, you know, one doesn't have to only sleep at night. Um, you know, we've all got our patterns. We go to bed at a certain time, wake up at a certain time. But um, if we look at sleep as also um, as a strategy rather than just something we do, there's also a strategy with sleep, and um, um, and I did read a little bit into the power of the nap, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, but the, 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 that can be a strategy. Sometimes you can't help the fact that you've got, you know, babies and noisy neighbours and so on. But there are scenarios mm -hmm. where maybe rather than going for a two-hour run, you go for an hour's run, but you also get a twenty-minute nap or something. What 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 about what about that? side of things. Yeah, yeah um, we definitely advocate napping uh, for many sports, especially the sports where or individuals who have to get up really early. So if you're a swimmer and you're getting up in the 4 a.m.s, which we have, some athletes are getting up before 5 a.m. in the morning, you cannot go to bed early enough to get the duration of sleep that you need. So the way that you can top up is um, and survive and cope with life is, is to have a nap. Um, and so we think that they can be really important just for, you know, a midday nap to prepare you for the afternoon session if you're sleep deprived. Um, they can be really important in reinforcing memory and learning. So sleeping after you've learnt something is really good for, um, for reinforcement. Um, and a lot of athletes will just need it to, to top up because they simply don't get um, the duration at night. But one thing that we're really cautious about, though, is saying, well, just because you can nap during the day and you have time, one, doesn't mean that you need it, and two, don't compromise your nighttime sleep because you can nap, um, because we see some athletes doing that as well. But, yeah, we think napping is is a really important thing for sleep-deprived um, athletes. Yeah. So um, this leads me on to – I know we're, we haven't got a whole lot of time left here, but um, – one thing I did want to get into is one of the papers you co-authored was on the impact of training schedules on the sleep and fatigue of elite athletes. And I thought this actually is a really important thing to get into quickly because, and you know, it's not always a case that um, um, sleep deprivation is a self-induced scenario. It, it might be that you're following um, your coaches or, you know, someone else's training plan and they have not themselves factored in um, the consequences of, of that schedule to your sleep uh, requirements or, or routine. Mm -hmm. what, what, what did you guys find in that regard? Yeah, so we found that, and it seems like a no-brainer, but we found that the earlier you schedule your um, training session, um, the less sleep an athlete's going to get. Um, and because you're exactly right, sometimes people don't factor in well there's travel time and some, some athletes may have to drive a lot further than others to training. Some may want to get up and eat um, in advance. Uh, and so there's, there might be things that individuals need to do to actually turn up at that first training session. Um, and so like I said, if you've got a 6 a.m. training session or sometimes in Australia we have like 5, 5.30 a.m. training sessions, um, you have to get up early and you just can't go to bed early enough. Um, to get enough sleep to make up for that. So, um, yeah, basically we just found that if you can push back your training times a little bit, you'll um, allow your athletes to have a greater duration of sleep. So so as we go beyond that, and, and obviously the point of that was just to make people think. It's like 
again, I always refer to these things as tools in the toolbox. You just need to think before you go and whip out that tool and go, right, I'm going to get loads of sleep or I'm going to schedule, you know, mm. just, think, just think about the bigger picture. What, you know, what are the implications of all these things? Um, but for those that do have issues with sleep, and, and we talked a lot about sleep hygiene in, in the other podcast, which mm. Um, there are certain things that one can do. What what are the sort of the 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 most obvious factors that will influence the quality of sleep in an individual? Yeah, um, we find that things like um, keeping a good routine, so bedtime at the same time and waking up at the same time as often as possible. Um, you know, we know that if you're a, a football player, you play at night and you play every week, you, you're going to probably have one really disturbed night of sleep. But you know, as often as you can, getting a good routine, um, trying to take the, the social media, the phones, the bright lights, the technology out of the bedroom. Um, easy to say, easy to recommend, not that easy to do. Um, keeping an eye on your caffeine intake, um, fluid. We see a lot of athletes get super excited about hydrating after training because they don't hydrate enough during training um, and then they find themselves going to the bathroom um, pretty regularly. So just getting your fluid, fluid and your food intake um, prepared, um, looking at your room environment. Is it cool? Is it dark? Is it quiet? You know, they're probably the, the, um, the really basic um, simple things. Um, we find that if athletes are struggling with sleep and they're doing all those all the things right, you know, they're going to bed at the same time and they're doing things properly. Quite often, we find it's their brain, um, and we handball them across to the uh, to the psychologist, or we we talk about finding relaxation strategies. Uh, we talk about them being organised and planned. So sometimes, you know, you're so busy, you hop into bed, and all of a sudden, that's the time you've got to think, and you start planning the next day, which is totally the wrong time to do it. So organised, planned, thoughts on paper, um, diary, um, those kinds of things can be really beneficial. Um, and then things like, you know, mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, reading a book, whatever it is, you know, finding something that works for you to kind of switch off um, uh, at the end of the day can help athletes, um, can help them sleep. Yeah. I mean, I, it is, particularly from a nutritional perspective, I find this conversation interesting because, and I know you've got a paper which is um, Sleep in Elite Athletes and Nutritional Interventions to Enhance Sleep, and I'll reference that in the uh, podcast section on this podcast notes. Um, and actually, I don't, I don't actually want to get too much into nutrition. I know we have very little time here because uh, folks can read about that, but um, I've certainly had a lot of athletes and clients who doing all the wrong things you know they're, they're they're you know on social media before bed they're watching you know the news before bed they're, uh, they're just doing so many of the wrong things um, but then they're trying to take some nutritional concoction to help them sleep um, mm. and, and, and you know and it's kind of ironic that those are the things that people do is they will, you know, overly focus on what I guess they feel is the easy thing to do. Uh, yeah. Whereas ironically, actually, there are some big <laughs> issues. And there's only fear, education and awareness, which is why things like this podcast are useful. Um, but in a nutshell, like, it, you know, nu nutritional interventions relative to the bigger factors, um, and I don't mean to lead by using the word bigger, but, you yeah. know, um, such as not looking at digital devices and, having some sort of routine, comfy bed, blackout curtains, all these sorts of things. But nutrition mm. can have an impact, can't it? Yeah, we think so. Um, they have, again, not a huge amount of research, but, um, you know, when you look at, which you would understand, some of the mechanisms involved around, you know, tryptophan and serotonin and melatonin, there's, you know, you can see the potential biological pathways, um, you know, milk, the old wives' tale, warm milk. Um, you know, there's some evidence around that, uh, real science, um, to show that it works. So I think if you can get the right combination of carbohydrates and proteins, um, you you know, you may just be able to to influence your sleep. I think we're a little bit far away from being able to say this is what you need to take this time, this amount. Um, right. There's still a lot of variables there, but there's potential there in the future to one help an athlete sleep and two to potentially enhance their overnight muscle recovery potentially through protein synthesis. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, talking about anticipatory stress, you know, there are certainly people who would be, oh, damn it, I ran out of milk or I ran out of my casein and then they'll spend the whole night 
stressing mm-hmm. out because they ran out of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Yeah. So, uh, and it might be, uh, I might do another podcast at some point where that can be more of a topic. But um, I just wanted to swiftly move past this. Um, people can read all about sleep and, as I say, listen to the other podcast. But just super quickly, this last few minutes then. Um, there are other areas that have at- had attention in research for recovery, and you've mentioned some that you may or not be as fond of, but things like cold water immersion, hydrotherapy, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. hot water immersion, like in um, uh, hot tubs uh, has been, yeah. um, and compression garments and so on. I mean, how I, I, I know we don't have enough time to get into all these things, but you know, the relevance of those um, for recovery, you know, where are we in terms of, of the research and the science relative, of course, to the popularity, particularly for things you can buy like garments and mm. those. Yeah. Yeah, look, the, I think um, when you're talking things like hydrotherapy, so the cold water and the contrast, mm. there is there is some pretty good evidence um as i was saying some you know some meta-analyses out there that show look if you do these things right um you can get performance benefits so it's something that we advocate that we use now we're careful about the timing but you know you can get small improvements in performance um, especially when athletes become fatigued say over a competition and if you've got a a multi-day competition then they can be really important. Um, we've done some research around compression. Again, there's some um, potential benefits there in terms of um, in terms of performance. If you know, if you if you do the um, you know if you're using things correctly, there's there's some benefits there. Um, most of these um, performance benefits are small, like everything. Caffeine benefits are small. Bicarb benefits are small. They're, you know they're they're not big benefits, but again, you know when you're talking. Tiny, um, tiny improvements making such a big difference to potential outcome, then, then they can all become important. So, yes, um, while I think we are careful about how we use hydrotherapy, um, it's definitely worth doing um, in certain environments. I think compression can be important and can be practical because that's, you know, sometimes you can't get an ice bath, um, so you can use your compression garments. I think we'll find in the future how important psychological recovery is um, and that's something that we advocate despite having not much research out there. Um, so they're probably the major, um, the major ones and, and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of recovery strategies out there may not um, have um, actual performance benefits per se mechanistically, but they may help the athlete feel good. And if you, uh, and, and we know that sometimes all the athlete wants is to just, just feel a little bit better, a little bit less sore and feel like they've done all they can to um, be prepared for, you know, a major competition. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, that's what I said earlier, you know, there is this propensity to get obsessed with trends and what's in vogue relative to yeah. the actual real-world impact on the athlete or the individual is maybe not as wonderful as, as you know, the, uh, the excitement would leave you to believe mm. Exactly. at the expense of getting sleep you know getting up early so that you can um um you know go put on your garments or or get into the uh hot tub or whatever um you know it, it's ironic that but, but people do that um mm. you know um i I've, i know i've certainly seen all sorts of weird things including someone uh, one of my clients who uh you know would sleep outside in his um homemade um um you know a homemade chamber that he created um you know to um uh, anyway well, i'm not going to go down that path that's a definite red herring but i mean I, the irony there is that he just wasn't sleeping because he he believed that you know trying to improve his um his uh oxygenation and all that stuff was mm. you know was more important so um, it didn't by the way <laughs> It didn't work, but um, <laughs> surprising. Yeah, um, but look, um, I think that's about as much as we can cover. It's been um, about an hour. Um, we've delved into topics, but hopefully, we've we've left people with more questions than answers, which is really where we are. I think with the knowledge is we, we mm. you know, and, and there's plenty to read into in terms of the work that you've contributed to. It's a fascinating topic and area. Listeners definitely should listen to the other podcast of them, uh, John Barlow, but also related topics, whether it's with um, Professor Neil Walsh, Professor Mike Gleason, 
um, uh, Glenn Davison, all about all related to immunity and health. I've done podcasts on periodization with um, uh, Dr. Greg Half, Dr. Anthony Turner, and so on. There's all sorts of different areas, but at the end of the day, it's just information. It's knowledge. You choose how you use it. Um, so um, I know you've got a flight to catch. Um, I do. <laughs> and, um, and we haven't really gotten into the topic of jet lag, um, but um, you know that is obviously another area that does affect people. Mm. But um, in terms of where we are today, I, I think you know um, it's been wonderful to have you on this podcast, Shona, and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Um, and I know that folks will enjoy reading your, your papers and, and so on. So if they want to find out a bit about more about you and what you're up to, um, you have a page at the AIS, don't you, I think? They can yep, yep. So how, how, do, how do people find out about that? Yeah, if they just go to um, AIS, uh, www.ais.org.au, there's um, some information there on most of the, the disciplines there in sports science, sports medicine. Um, it's probably probably the best way. And of course, Twitter, we're always tweeting out our most recent papers and um, trying to stay in touch like, like all of us on, the, um, on the what's happening in the, in the science world. Yeah, well, it's exciting times. Um, that is for sure. Um, and it's great to have you know, voices like yours in all the noise, particularly on social media, where there's um, maybe uh, conflicting information out there. But I'm <laughs> to, to have you on this podcast, Shona. So thank you so much for your time today. Right. Um, thank you. Even it did make me get up early. And get up early. <laughs> coffee now. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, remember, uh, there's a whole bunch of podcasts you need to listen to. Um, I've also got some infographics about sleep, actually, that we've created with my team at Guru Performance, uh, which has been based on the available evidence. You can read um, and look at those up at guruperformance.com and under infographics. Do have a look at our position stand articles, our info videos, and our other educational programs at guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all. And uh, once again, thank you, Shona. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.